Morning, church. The people that get your ear get your head. The thoughts that get in your head determine the contents of your heart. And the contents of your heart determine the identity of your life. Let me say it again for you. The people that get in your ear, they get in your head. The thoughts that get in your head determine the contents of your heart. And the contents of your heart determines the identity of your life. Today I want to talk to you about your identity in Christ. So if you can, I want you to turn to two passages. That's why God gives us multiple fingers here to go to Acts 27 and then to go to Mark chapter 1. Acts 27 and then Mark chapter 1. These two passages aren't separated by very much, so they should be pretty easy to find even if you're new to, uh, to the Bible, new to church. You know, sometimes we feel called to do something great with our lives and, uh, and we're inexperienced, we're inadequate. God becomes all that you have in those moments. And you know those moments when you're inadequate, when you're inexperienced, when you don't have it going on for you. And God is just everything you have. And when you can reach a point where he's all that you have, I think we'll finally realize he's really all that we need. One time the apostle Paul was on a ship and it was caught in a storm that was so violent that everyone on board just knew that they were about to die. They were scared. They were hungry. They had already thrown all the food and cargo overboard days before. So with very little hope until Paul spoke in Acts 27, verse 23 through 25, where he gives this motivational speech. Let me read this to you if you'll follow along. Last night, an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Now flip over to Mark chapter one, just real fast. This passage describes the baptism of Jesus himself in uh, verse nine in John chapter one. It says this, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love and with you I am well pleased. There's a sweet little business book. I'm not a business book guy until Matt Crawford got me to read From Good to Great. I think it was a while back. And so I try to keep up every once in a while because I enjoy that. And I enjoy trying to learn how to be more organized, how to, uh, to understand structure and stuff. And so I just read a little bit of this book this past year called Made to Stick. Maybe some of you have heard this book. And I've read a little bit of it, but not because I'm trying to start my own youth ministry business, but because it's all about six ways to communicate effectively and whether you're a pastor, a businessman, a stay-at-home mom, it, it tells you how to communicate better and, uh, and allows you to communicate things in a way that will stick in people's minds. And I think a preacher should know how to do that, and uh, whether he's a youth pastor or not, and I want to do it. And so um, to be honest, I haven't read it all, like I said. I've just read bits of it in Borders, which is the free way to do it. Um, I'm all about that. I like sitting over in the corner and ripping Borders off a little bit. Maybe that's wrong. Maybe I should repent of that right here. I don't know, but that's what I do. And uh, so I just get a stack of books every once in a while, maybe like once a month, and I just chill over there in the corner. So if you're ever in Taylor, just come hang out with me a little bit. Um, Anyway, but there's this one little thing I want to bring up about the book, and it talks about how in the state of Texas in the 1980s, they had this huge pollution problem. 
And the state was, just, the state was quickly becoming the most litter-infested state in the entire country. So they hired this consultant, a man that was head of the largest litter research organization in America. And they hired him a, a litter specialist. That's weird, but okay. And they, this man's job was simply to identify the problem in Texas and to formulate this strategic campaign in fighting the problem in whatever way he could and involving whatever people he could involve to do it. So when Texas hired him, they wanted to know this question right off the bat. They wanted to know who are the people that are littering the most? So it was like, who's our target demographic? And they found out that the people most likely to litter in the state were good old fashioned Texas rednecks. Amen? Mississippi right here. Men between the ages of 18 to 35 that had like gun racks, that had big trucks, um, with mud flaps, listening to Toby Keith, I don't know, whatever they got. And with a little bit of dip in the corner of their mouth, these are the guys. And I can say that because that is where I am from in Mississippi, okay? So I can say that. Um, and this is their target demographic. The state of Texas had already attempted to get their message out to the people, including this specific section of people, by putting signs all over the highways, putting signs all over the roads, saying, please don't litter, and that wasn't working. And... Uh, you know, stuff like give a hoot, don't pollute. You read that stuff before? Um, the little Indian with the tear trail, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, they had all that. None of that stuff worked. So these 18 to 35-year-old gun rack men didn't care much about the hoot owls and they didn't really care about how much the Native Americans cried and they didn't really, you know, they just kept littering. They realized that they needed to try a new message and a new slogan to reach these men to help them stop littering. And so they came up with this slogan, don't mess with Texas. <laughs> that was their slogan to reach this demographic of men. Don't mess with Texas. And some of you have heard this, um, but this long before it was ever on the, the belt buckles, long before it was ever on the bumper sti- stickers, it, it started with this, this slogan for this pollution campaign, um, before it was on the t-shirts, all that, it started here. You may say, well, did it work? Well, within a year, the stats in the book anyway say that within a year, litter in the state of Texas decreased by 28%. And by five years, it decreased by 72%, which made Texas, that was one of the worst states in our country to litter, became one of the best states for cleanliness in our country because of the slogan. Now, I know you're like, what in the world does that have to do with Acts 27 and Mark chapter one? I don't really care about business books. I don't really even care about Texas. So I just wanna know how it applies to me. Here it is, stay with me, hang in there. Paul on a ship and Jesus getting baptized. Here it is. The reason that author suggests that the campaign worked is that all the previous campaigns, and you gotta stay with me, to clean up Texas have been based on this word, responsibility. Everything been based on responsibility. You should throw your trash away properly, people, because it's the right thing to do. It's about being responsible. But when they said, don't mess with Texas, it was all based on identity. I'm a Texan, and you don't mess with Texas. I'm a Texan. They had on their, on their commercials, the book was saying that uh, they had Dallas Cowboys who were just crushing cans. They were talking about, don't mess with Texas. Throw these cans in the garbage. You know, they'd have Astro pitchers just heaving this can like a fastball, like lightning fast into a garbage can. And um, they had George Foreman, who's a boxer, if you like boxing. They had him, you know, doing, doing uh, some commercials for them. They even had Willie Nelson, you know, uh, singing and, and doing little parodies for Don't Mess With Texas. They had all this stuff going on. And before he knew it, these men started to just get it. This isn't about responsibility. This is about my identity. I am a Texan and you don't mess with Texas. Nobody messes with Texas, not even me. You don't mess with Texas. I think the reason that we are so unsuccessful in the church 
motivating generations of people, teenagers but adults alike, motivating generations of people to live for Christ is that we've appealed too much to the responsibility and not enough to the identity, if that makes sense to us. Um, don't have sex before marriage. You don't have sex before marriage. You'll get a disease. It's bad. It's wrong. You just save that moment and that intimacy for your husband one day. You just do it. Responsibility. Don't cheat on your taxes because the IRS will come and get you. The IRS will come for you. They may catch you. That's wrong. You just don't do that. That's wrong. That's bad. Responsibility. What I think would be wonderful to see at Kirby Church is this corporate culture this, this uh, lifelong culture where the people of God obey the laws of God and walk in the ways of God, not because of responsibility, but because of identity. Paul said this in Acts 27, 23 through 25. I just want to read this very first part, if you'll pop it back. Last night, an angel of the God, whose I am and whom I serve, stood beside me. This is sweet. Listen to this, church. This is really good. When I read that this week, it was like light bulbs were just flashing and popping on in my head. Whose I am, identity, comes before whom I serve, responsibility. Whose I am comes before whom I serve. There's a whole lot of churches that care about wonderful, godly things, trying to get people to do the right activities. And I understand, and I, I, I've been there, and this is why it's, it's hitting me right where I'm at, that we try to get people to do the right activities. You try to get your children and grandchildren to do the right things before these people even understand their identity. And they're frustrated and confused. And maybe you sit there as a frustrated person trying to seek the gospel because you feel like the church is telling you do X, Y, and Z. You should just do it. You just do it and that's all there is to it. That's all you gotta do. You don't cheat, you don't do this, you save this, you, you do that. Don't mess with Texas because you're a Texan and Texans don't throw trash on their Texas. So don't mess with Texas. That changes everything. So instead of screaming to our young people, don't have sex before marriage, we need to address the identity by teaching our children and by teaching our teenagers even corporately. Teenagers who love Jesus don't take their clothes off in the back seat of a car. Teenagers who love Jesus strive to be pure and holy and righteous in the sight of God. Amen, isn't that what we should do? That's where we should be. Identity, that's who you are. You are pure, you're righteous in the eyes of God because you're a believer and you should act like that. Let your actions follow your identity. It changes everything. I so strongly believe this church that it's affecting the way I parent my two little girls. My, my wife is a wonderful mother, and I learned so much from her. And every once in a while, we'll catch Anna Claire doing something blatantly disrespectful to her little sister, Emily. She has successfully figured out how to violently love Emily, okay? This is a success in her life at this point, okay? And I really do think sometimes she's not even trying to hurt her. And sometimes it's right the opposite. Emily would just, just walk up and just hit her around the head and laugh. She doesn't hate her. She loves her, violently loving her. They figured this out. And sometimes they're not even trying to hurt each other. She's choking Emily to love her, I guess. I don't know. I don't get it. But, I mean, I promise, I love you so much, you're going to die to know it. You know, it's just like, man, I love you. One day recently, it got to the point where I am just saying, I say recently, this happens all the time. Don't touch her, okay? I'm, I'm, don't get near her, just stay away from her. Don't touch your sister because sometimes, you know, just gets to that point. Amen, parents? Yep, you know. 
Then screams from the living room, I hear. I walk back in the living room. Anna Claire is huddled with five or six toys. Emily has none. And you know what's going on here, you know? This is the way it is, you know? She's just hoarding this thing and they won't share. And, uh, and so I, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, listen, listen, maybe I should do something a little bit more practical, wave the gun around. I'm just kidding, I'm not gonna do that. But I'm just saying, I, maybe the most practical thing I want my girls to learn. This is just the, the honest truth of where I'm at in my parenting life. Maybe the most practical thing I want my girls to learn is this. I want them to learn selflessness. I want them to learn that. I want them to learn how to be selfless. My initial reaction is, Anna Claire, stop being so stinking selfish. I bought the toys, I'll take the toys, I'll burn the toys, I'll dance around the toys while they're burning, I don't care. That's my initial reaction, okay? That's where I wanna be. But then, then it's like in that moment, God gives me this different strategy, which thank God for that. He gives me this different strategy where I'm just saying to Anna Claire, and I'm telling Jessica this the other night, I'm like, man, Jessica, this is such a God thing for me. Where I'm just, Anna Claire, you're kind. Anna Claire, you are selfless. You love your sister. I know you do. Share with your sister because you have a great heart. I know you do. I see your great heart. I see your sweetness. And I want to help teach you how to be even better at that. And it worked. That time, that one time. But it worked. And as I've been thinking about that, I've been thinking about the day that Jesus was baptized in that Mark 1 passage. If, you'll just, if your fingers are still there, if they're not, just follow along in this one verse. Mark chapter 1, verse 11. that says this. And a voice came from heaven that said, You are my son, whom I love. And with you, I am well pleased. Listen to this. This is, this is odd. God the Father told his son Jesus that he loved him. And that he was pleased with him. Before Jesus ever even performed his first miracle. Before he ever did did a thing. He said, hey, this is my son. You are my son. Whom I love. And with whom I am well pleased. Why? Because identity supersedes activity. Oh, that's, that's, that's good. Before Jesus ever cast out his first demon before Jesus ever performed his first miracle, before Jesus ever gave his first public sermon, before he ever walked on water, before he ever multiplied bread, God said, I love you and and, and I'm pleased with you, not because of what you've done, but because of who you are. I love you. Paul said, the God whose I am, identity, and whom I serve, activity, is standing beside me and he's protecting me. And he said, everything's going to be all right because identity is bigger than activity. If God's people could understand this, if we could grasp this, if we could internalize this, if we could just simply live like this, things would be so different for us. We we wouldn't refrain from sin because you just shouldn't sin. We would refrain from sin because it's not who we are to be. Don't mess with Texas. Not because the police might catch, catch you littering. Not because you're, um, you're just supposed to do it. But because you are a Texan and Texans don't trash Texas. Don't mess with Texas. See, if you're a young lady who understands that your temple, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, then he wouldn't put his hands on your body. Not because your dad might find out, which fathers, that's enough, right? But because of who you are. <laughs> 
He's not gonna do it because of who you are. And I just have to tell you today that no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, listen to me, no matter, God does not define your life by what you have done. He defines your life by who you are. And if you place, if you place your faith in Christ, if you place your, your lordship in Jesus, if you realize that you are fully accepted and you've given your life to him, he's Lord of your life, not just somebody else's Lord, my Lord, my God, you are greatly loved, you are powerfully equipped, child of God, that's who you are. And you need to realize that. That's exactly who you are. To the young lady who's had an abortion and you lie awake at night, just wondering what it would be like if your four-year-old would be playing with the other four-year-olds on the playground, what that would be like. The abortion is what you did, but it is not who you are. Identity supersedes activity. Who you are means more to God than what you've done. And that's for you people who are doing everything for the Lord. He cares more about who you are than what you do. By the grace of God, a son, a daughter of the King of Kings is who you are, accepted and loved by Christ, forgiven by his shed blood on the cross. That's who you are, that's who you are. His righteousness covers you. When he looks at you, he sees Jesus. That's who you are. Fathers and young men, maybe you're tired even now because pornography kept you up well into the night last night. And I'm even saying it to you and and you wanna just stir a little bit because of the conviction that God places on your life and this addiction that you're wrapped up in that you don't want. You don't want a part of that. Pornography is what you have done. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, it does not have to define who you are. God the Father told Jesus he loved him before Jesus ever did anything publicly for him. So get this. If God gets your ear, he will get in your head. If scripture gets in your head, it will determine the contents of your heart. And the righteousness of your heart in God's eyes determines the identity of your life. When Anna Claire uh, was born, we lived in Nashville. We were wrapping up college, my wife and I. And uh, um, she was born 10 weeks early, if you don't know. My, My little girl was just a little bitty thing. And, uh, and she was just such a miracle to us. I mean, it was just a, an amazing thing. And, uh, and I remember one day that Jess looked at me and said, don't you just love her so much already? We don't even know her really. Don't you just love her so much? And I said, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see if she sleeps through the night. We'll see if she's potty trains quickly. Yeah, we'll see. You think I said that? We'll see how advanced she is. We'll see just how well she plays with other kids. We'll see. We'll see how she scores on her ACT one day. Listen, you can love her, but we'll see. I'll figure it out along the way. I didn't say that about my daughter. I would never say that about my daughter. You don't say things like that about your kids. Then why in the world should we think that our perfect heavenly father would feel that way about you? Why would you ever think that? Why should I ever come to believe that? Yet some of us in here live under this cloud of condemnation as if the jury is still out on what God feels about you. As if, as if there's no telling what God thinks about your life and where you're at. Let me, let me tell you something. God made up his mind as to what he thought about you before you were even born. We talked about it Wednesday night. Before 
you were born. Before you were in your mother's womb, I knew you. All of that. I mean, that's, the, that's gospel truth. I knew you before you were born. God made up his mind as to what he thought about you before you were even born. No heavenly father who gives up his very own son to ransom your life can help but have the most utmost love for you. There's no way. He's got to love you so much. The greatest grace to offer you. God loves you not because of what you've done, but simply because of who you are. You can't change it. Can't change his love. You can't negate his love. You can't run from his love. You can't hide from his love. You can't overcome his love. This, this love of God is based on your identity in him and what he sees in you. God looked at Jesus and said, that's my boy. That's my son. This is, this is who I'm pleased with. I'm so pleased with you before you ever preach a sermon. Before you ever do anything for me, son, I love you because of you. Let me tell you, if you're, if you're in the family of God today, if you have accepted Christ as the Lord of your life, you've trusted in him for salvation, you know he loves you not because of the great things that you have done, but simply because of who you are in him, that you're made by him, you're loved by him, you're known by him. Sometimes you just need to hear that. Even if you're a believer in here, sometimes you just need to hear it. I guess really even thinking about it right now, I guess we need to hear it every week, all week. I can't ever forget it. He loves me for who I am. Every single week I need to recognize it. Because there are so many realities that compete to define us, right? Some of us have grown up in a home where your parents called you names, said you're stupid, treated you as if you were just less than. Why can't you be more like your brother? Why can't you be more like? So you've embraced that identity because of your activity. Parents, I don't think, and, and I'm learning so much from us about parenting, but I think sometimes we speak to our children. We don't need to speak to them on the basis of what they've done, but on the basis of who they are and the potential that they have in Christ. And I'm learning this. I'm just, I'm trying to learn this. If God sees potential in them, why can't I? Why can't you? Hmm. Jesus called Peter the rock a long time. I mean, chapters before he denied Christ. He called him the rock. Long time before he preached uh, on the day of Pentecost. Not after Peter wrote the books of the Bible. He didn't call him that then. But before, days before he would deny Jesus, he said, you're the rock. You're the rock. You're who I'm gonna base my church on. This is, this is what it's about. David was called a man after God's own heart, but he committed adultery. That's what he did. But he was a man after God's own heart. That's who he was. The prodigal son lived a party life and neglected his birthright, but when he came home, his father said, you are my son, and praise God, I'm just glad you're home. My son's home, my son's home. We're, we're bringing this back to point. His activity does not define him. His identity is what it's all about. Moses killed an Egyptian. Murder is what he did, but who he was was a man who knew God face to face. God defines your life on who you are, not on what you've done. Bottom line, church, bottom line. You cannot define your life by how you feel. How you feel is not who you are. If you feel depressed, depression may be what you feel, but it doesn't define who you are. Listen to me, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. There's got to be activity, true? There's got to be activity. Activity flows from identity. It cannot be the other way around. It cannot be activity and then identity. You've gotta serve God activity, but it's got to flow out of identity. The God whose I am and whom I serve, this is just foundational. At the core of what you are, when Jesus comes into your life, he makes you new. Your identity shifts 
And you're not spending your time trying to be holy and acceptable to God because you just are. But you're trying to make your activity line up with what you already are in God's eyes. This is the true Christian living. And you'll wear yourself out. Look at me. I, I'm just a young dude, man. I, but but I'm, I have been here already. And so many of us who haven't accepted Christ, you've been here most of your life. You will wear yourself out trying to make the activities come first before it's your identity, before it's who you are. Your life will be miserable. Let me close with this. Um, when I was in high school, I really, I, I was, I wanted to give my best to God. I wanted to give my best and I did some dumb things and, but it was out of a good heart. You know, those raw Christians that you know that are even around us in here and you think, oh man, he said some dumb stuff. Yeah, that's still me, but that was really me then. And I mean, I just wanted to give my best to God, whatever, whatever it took. I didn't care what I looked like. And so uh, I went to go eat at Applebee's with some of my friends and I was really questioning this whole thing you know just um I didn't I didn't know all the people at, at Applebee's I just knew a couple of them and we went and hung out and we had a good time and and these guys you know they were smoking and they were just doing their own thing and and uh and then afterwards they said you know you're not nearly as bad as um uh, as what Josh one of my buddies who who's a Christian as well not nearly as bad and and um just dull as what we thought you would be as a Christian and I thought what <laughs> Oh, thanks. I mean, I don't get that. You know, they, they said, they said we just thought that Christianity was all about just the rules and the regulations, that it was all about what you did and not about who you were. And, and you're not nearly as bad as I thought. And it hit me then, and it hits me even more now. When I graduated college, it hit me. When I held my babies, it hit me. When I became a youth pastor at Kirby Church, it hit me. I've got this identity. And it was a defining moment to me all throughout those moments where everywhere I go, I have the potential for someone to know who I am. In Christ, I have the potential and I've got to live in a way that's consistent with who I am. But you have to know it's not just to the pastors that Paul wrote this verse that we're gonna read in Ephesians 4. If you don't mind, go ahead and put it up. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. That's not to just pastors. That's not to just Sunday school teachers, life group leaders. That's not to who they are. This is to anyone who calls themselves a Christian. This is to anyone. You lose your temper. It's not who you are. It's what you did. You say, I, I, I'm struggling with temptation. My mind's consumed. That's not who you are. You are holy. You are righteous in Christ, washed and made new by the blood. If you're a believer, that's who you are. So act like it. And you've got this responsibility to be worthy of your calling with the activity that follows your identity. And it hit me in those moments in high school and even now that, Tommy, you need to walk worthy of the calling that you have. You need to walk worthy of the Savior that you proclaim to serve, the Lord that is mine. You need to walk worthy of that parent, worthy of that. Love your wife, worthy of that. In Jesus' first recorded sermon ever, in Matthew, in Matthew 5, he even starts it out. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth because you can never understand what you're to do if you don't first get who you are. Identity comes before activity. And if it doesn't, you will find it very easy to be caught up in a hypocritical lifestyle. For those of you who aren't Christians in here today, I have to tell you, you cannot become a Christian through your activity. You cannot, but only through your identity. And if you hear this today and you try to go home and you try to put into practice before God changes your identity, before you give your heart to him and he's the Lord of your life, before you do that and you go home and just try to make some changes, it will not work until God changes you from the inside out. Will not work. You'll be a frustrated young man, a frustrated grandparent. God paid a high price for your potential. 
a high price. Do you know who you are this morning? Do you know your identity? Do you know that you can be more than a conqueror today? Do you know that that's who you are? That's your identity. And don't you ever forget it. Can you just stand with us and let's close our eyes, bow our heads in prayer. Father, Lord, I'm excited, Lord, about my identity in you. Lord, I don't have to earn it. I've just given my life to you. I've made you Lord of my heart. I've given you the, the, the throne in my life to make the decisions, to be the CEO of anything that I do and am in charge of, Lord, and any of the leadership things that I, that I, that I get to lead in my, my home, in my, my relationship with my wife, in my friendships. Lord, you are king of it. You are Lord of it. And I pray, God, for those of us in this auditorium today, Lord, I pray that we would know who we are in you. Lord, that our activities don't define us. What we have done don't define us. The temptations that we have committed uh, sin with over and over and over and even last night and maybe even this morning before we got here, Lord, that that does not define us. It is not my identity, but my identity is caught up in you and in your view of me. So Father, I pray in a moment, God, that, that, our, that our, uh, our worship band, Lord, would lead us as, as we quiet our souls, as we quiet our minds, as we quiet our hearts, God, to, to feel freedom in you. That it's not about what I do, even though that should follow, but it's about my identity, who I am in you. Father, I pray for those that aren't Christians in here, that, that have never accepted you as their savior, Lord of their life, allowed you to be the decision maker of everything in them, Lord, that their, their precepts and principles would all revolve around God's word, that it would all be about you, God. I pray that they would be saved today. I pray that they would give you their hearts and that it wouldn't be an outward thing. It would be an inward thing. It would happen from the inside and then protrude outward. Lord, that us, uh, uh, our Christians in here, that, Lord, that have been believers for a long time or that just became believers even recently, God, that they would bring it back to point that it's about my identity, not about my activity. It's about the thing that I am, who I am, not about the things and the stuff that I do. Lord, may you just free us this morning, free us of the shackles and the, the issues that we have, God, so that we can bring it right back to you. Lord, that I am yours and I serve because of that. Whose I am and whom I serve. Lord, I pray that these people would feel boldness to be able to accept you today. Boldness to get the sin out of their hearts, out of their lives. Boldness to be able to, to remove the things that are barriers in their lives. And Father, may you do a work in us. Give us freedom this morning, Lord. Give us comfort. Give us peace. And may we be faithful, Lord, to be yours this morning. You just keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Consume me from the inside. Let's sing that again. Let's sing that again in my heart. In my heart and my soul. Lord, I give you control. Consume me from the inside. 